John. Well, welcome to Emmaus Church. So glad you're here. My name's Nathan. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible, and we'll give one to you, uh, and you can follow along in a little bit. In a few minutes, I'll be looking at part of a letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, so you can turn to the 1 Corinthians. The letter called 1 Corinthians is on page 801. At least that's the 15th chapter. That's where we'll be hanging out. So keep your hand up if you like a Bible, and someone will deliver it to you. Thanks so much, Justin and others. Appreciate that. Also, if you're sitting on an aisle and there's a basket near your seat, would you take it and pass it down? There's, there's cards in these baskets, and they're just intended to be a way for you to hand off your contact information if you'd like to share that with us. Uh, share a prayer request with us if you'd like us to pray for something specific this week as we meet as a staff. We'll collect those in a little bit. All right? Well, welcome. I know it's the beginning of summer. We're in full swing. A lot of family's kind of plans going on today. Um, but I'm so glad that you chose to be with us today, and uh, I'm really excited about the morning. I, I want to talk, we've been teaching on the Apostles' Creed, which is a historic Christian creed written in the second century. I'm going to wrap that series up today. I'm going to address fatherhood, Father's Day. I'm going to talk about the culture a little bit. I'm going to talk about the resurrection a little bit. I'm going to just sort of stir fry the whole thing together, all right? And we'll just, we'll, it'll, it'll work itself out towards the end. Um, I'm trusting, all right? So I'm so glad that you're, you're here. Let me start with the story. I was 21 years old. I was living for the summer in uptown Chicago, which is the inner city on the north side of, of uh, Chicago. I was volunteering for the summer at a shelter for women and children um, that was run by an organization called Jesus People USA. And so one day I'm walking down the street and I've got two little kids with me from the shelter. One of them's name was Donnell, and as we're walking down the street, this car slows down, and the man sitting in the passenger seat slowly kind of looks at me and looks at the kids and does one of these, just kind of nods, like bobs his head a little bit, and then keeps on um, driving. And Donnell, this little boy, initially I could tell he was really excited, but almost immediately he suppressed that excitement. He tried to act all cool, and he does one of these back to the guy as the car pulls away. And so I asked Donnell, who, who was that? And he said, that was Ricky's father. Ricky was Donnell's older brother. Ricky on, and Donnell lived in the shelter with their mom and two more brothers and a little sister. Five kids in the shelter with their mom. All five kids had a different dad. The only one I met all summer I didn't even meet him. The only one I saw all summer was Donnell's, as he basically did this little nod drive-by, uh, or was Ricky's, as, as, he, as he drove by. And that was just one of what's become a large collection of personal observations about what a father looks like to different people at different times in life. What does a father look like? Um, according to our culture, if you just kind of thought of it from our culture's perspective, and of course it's changing and depends on where you are, like what is a father? Uh, what does it take to be a father? It probably depends on where you grew up, right? It probably depends on what was normal for you, it probably depends on what you experienced, it probably depends on what those around you were experiencing and labeling father or dad. So what's good and what's normal and what's adequate and what's weird? Uh, what's strange? There's a lot of conversation happening in our culture, and by that I mean our country right now, about what is considered normal. Uh, 
People are talking about it a lot because it's changing a lot. It seems to be changing really rapidly. In the last 10 to 20 years, our culture's perspective, not just on fatherhood, but on parenting is changing a lot, on marriage is changing really rapidly, on gender, our culture's perspective is changing really rapidly, even on race, our culture's perspective is changing. Things that for a long time seemed, at least to me, to be pretty well established are in flex and, and, and is like wide open. And one of the reasons I think cultural perspective on things like fatherhood, cultural perspective on things like marriage, the cultural's per, culture's perspective on faith, on ethics, one of the reasons this matters so much is because we're shaped by this stuff. We can't help to be shaped by it. We're like fish swimming in it, right? Cultural perspectives affect what we talk about. Cultural perspectives affect the way we talk about them. In many, in many cases, our culture's, our culture's perspective is our starting point. I probably had 10 conversations at a variety of events, baseball games, parties, and things like that we were at yesterday. Probably had 10 conversations with people that essentially started with some sort of cultural comment, some sort of culturally rooted comment, some sort of shared experience comment, things really sort of basic like, wow, it's really hot out here, to comments about things that are in the news, to questions about parenting that assume a certain set of priorities, that assume a certain set of challenges. The whole thing is just washed over with this shared culture, this shared experience, this common way of thinking about something. Culture is our starting point, and for biblical writers like Paul, it was their starting point as well. This is why it's so important that we don't just pull verses right out of the Bible and apply them to 2015, but that we do do a little bit of work reading about the culture in which the scriptures were written. The Apostle Paul is an early Christian writer who writes letters of instruction to Christian churches, and these letters almost instantly upon being written are viewed as, as reflecting the will of Jesus, the word of Christ, so accurately that they're embraced by the Christian church as scripture. They're, they're parts of what we have in our Bible today. Now, much of what Paul writes to the churches, he writes to correct them, which is interesting, right? So Paul travels around, starts churches, and then in the years that follow, he writes letters to correct the way they're thinking. Why does he need to correct the way the churches that he started are thinking? Well, it's because the church has always struggled with being more influenced by pop culture than by the word of God. That's always been a challenge for us, right? So take, for example, one of the big themes of the New Testament, which is the idea of the resurrection, the, the New Testament, the major theme of the New Testament is the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of that. Well, there were different perspectives, cultural perspectives on the idea of resurrection. Let me kind of walk through a couple of them with you. During the time of Jesus, most Jews believed that the dead would rise again at some point in the future. There's a story in the Gospels about two sisters named Mary and Martha. They send a message to Jesus because their brother Lazarus is sick. They want Jesus to come. When Jesus ultimately does come, Lazarus has already died. Martha meets Jesus on the road and says, if you would have been here, Jesus, my brother Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus replies to her by saying, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus corrects her understanding and says, I am the resurrection. 
right? And then he confronts her expectation by raising her brother from the dead, not sometime a millennial, you know, a thousand years away, but raising him from the dead right here, right now. Right? So he's correcting, he's changing her mostly correct cultural perspective on the resurrection. Here's another example. Paul, he is a starting church. Jesus ministers primarily to Jews, almost exclusively to Jews. Paul starts churches with non-Jews, with Greeks, right? Gentiles. They have a different cultural perspective on the resurrection. They basically believe that the resurrection is not going to happen. There is no resurrection, right? Life ends at death. So Paul addresses that. He confronts that. In fact, almost all early Christian sermons that we read in the Bible have the resurrection as a major theme because they're correcting the dominant Greek cultural perspective. Here's one place where Paul tries to correct the cultural perspective on resurrection. It's in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. Uh, you can read it with me if you like. It's on page 801 in the Bibles that you were handed. Otherwise, I'll just read it. The first line is on the screen. This is what Paul says, arguing for the resurrection. He says, but if, the, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, which is the way that Paul refers to Christians who have died, he says those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost too. Um, in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. For Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, agricultural metaphor, the first one of many to be raised from the dead. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam, that's the first man he refers to, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Last sentence that I'll read here, but each in his own turn. No, that was where I want to end. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Right. So there are a lot, of, a lot of passages in the Bible which talk about the resurrection in similar ways because they're trying to correct the, the uh, predominant cultural view of the of the idea. So in scripture, we read about the resurrection. In scripture, we read about the resurrection of the dead. We read about the resurrection from the dead. But here's what's interesting, and now we're going to wrap into the Apostles' Creed here, because we don't actually read in scripture about the resurrection of the body, which is interesting because everybody who gets resurrected gets resurrected in a body. It's like it's implied. Of course, that's the only reason we know that Lazarus gets resurrected, because he walks out of the tomb in a body, right, with a body. So why then does the, do the writers of the Apostles' Creed feel like they have to actually explicitly state, we believe in the resurrection of the body? Well, it's because the always shifting cultural perspective, which was powerfully influencing the church at the time of the Apostles' Creed, a couple hundred years after Paul, was leading to a really messed up view 
of the body are really messed up. So this needs to be addressed and confronted and corrected. The second or third century Greek perspective on the body was actually a whole lot like the current American or Western perspective on the body. And this perspective tends towards one of two extremes. On one extreme, this perspective leans to like the worship of the body, the, the, um, the absolute emphasis of the body, the amplification of the body, the augmentation of the body. The body is worshiped and everything is sexualized. That's one extreme. Another extreme of this perspective on the body, on the other side, is that the body is despised. It's mistreated. It's abused. It's seen as bad or evil. Now, what's interesting is these two different perspectives actually share a common conviction. The common conviction that they share, which is the problem that needs to be confronted by Christian theology, is that the body and the soul are separate. That you can separate those two. That we're talking about two different things, which is certainly not what the Christian perspective is, right? If, if, the, if the body is separate from the soul, then yeah, sex is just physical. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect you on the inside. It's just casual, recreational, because it's just physical. Well, that's not a Christian understanding of sex. Or, if, the, if body and soul can be separated, then, then true spirituality is to be enlightened and to leave the body, which we, we still hear about that all the time. But that's not a Christian perspective of, of knowledge and wholeness to leave, to ditch the body. That's only possible if the body and the soul are separate. But from the Christian perspective, you can't separate body and soul. Christians believe that people are whole, body and soul, therefore people are wholly saved. So we talk about soul salvation, the salvation of our souls, but Christian understanding is not just that there is soul salvation, but a good Christian understanding is that there's whole salvation. We probably have a pretty good idea of what we mean when we talk about the salvation of the soul. We probably have a less of a clear idea of the fact that there is a distinct Christian theology of the body as well, and that they go together. Let me just quickly run through like 13 things that Christians believe about the body, and, and we'll wrap it back up into this in a second. Here's a, here's, a, here's a quick overview. A Christian theology of the body. We believe the body is mortal. Bodies age, they get sick, they break down, they ultimately die. Secondly, we believe the body can be sinful, Sin doesn't start in my hands, right? It starts somewhere else, in my soul, in my spirit. It's usually materialized physically, but it doesn't start there. But the body can, be expre can express itself in sinful ways. Number three, the body can be dishonored by sin. Paul uses the word degraded. But, number four, the body can also be redeemed. Paul says we, eagerly, uh, we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Isn't that interesting? So Paul says, in other words, um, there's this, God can use hands that have done evil, he can redeem them and, and enable them to do good. Right. Number five, your body can be offered as a living sacrifice, Paul says to the Romans. This is interesting because at the time, all kinds of religions were saying your bodies can be offered to God as a sacrifice. It usually involved jumping, in, jumping into a, like a volcano right, or something like that. Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be wholly given over to God in the way you live. And it gets better. Number six, your body can be a temple or a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The, God's presence can actually live within you. 
And even better, your body can be part of Christ's body. We are his hands. We are his feet. You begin to see how the Christian perspective on the body is the most amazing, most um, uh, robust, beautiful, highest view of the body. And uh, Number eight, we believe the body, not just the spirit, can be holy. Number nine, we believe that Christ can be glorified, not just in sunsets, not just in redwood trees, but can be glorified in our bodies. Number 10, we believe that our bodies can actually reveal Christ, that we can show others physically through our bodies the truth of Christ. It makes me think about people who are healed from physical illness or people who have overcome addiction and now their very bodies are like a testimony of health and redemption and, and being saved and rescued. Number 11, the body, not, the, not just the soul, can be blameless. That's what Paul prays for the Thessalonian church, that they'll be blameless in their body. And then the last two are the most important. Number 12, we believe that God himself, God, took on flesh, became human, took on a body. It's the incarnation is the doctrine that we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus comes to live and die as one of us, right? Bringing great value to the physical. And he didn't just do that, but he retained his body, number 13, in the ascension. He ascends back into heaven with the body, demonstrating that salvation is not just for the soul. Salvation is for the whole person body and soul together. So the bottom line of Christian theology of the body is this. It's, it's your body matters. Your body matters. It matters so much that it will be resurrected as part of the new creation, right? And, and, the, and the conviction behind this is, is that there's this, um, there's this great value placed here that God does not create anything just to discard it. So the bottom line your body will be resurrected. What do we do with that? Is that just sort of a Christian version of be healthy? Is that just sort of a Christian way of saying don't do drugs, right? Or something like that. Uh, eat right. Gets in us. That's probably part of it because there's a stewardship element to this. In other words, we should care for what we've been given, whether it's our children, our finances, our bodies, whatever. But the, what's really at the point, I think, of declaring and the fact that for 1,800 years, Christians in their worship gatherings, if they've been influenced at all by the historic church, have declared as part of the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body. There's something more there, and I think it comes down to two things. There's a big picture reality, and then there's a real personal reality. So on the grand scale, declaring that the body will be resurrected is declaring that everything will be restored to its pre-sin, pre fallen, pre-broken state. God will restore all things to the way they were meant to be before sin, before decay happened, before illness was ever introduced to the human condition, before selfish decisions led to bodies being covered in shame like Adam and Eve, before selfish decisions led to bodies being killed in hatred like Cain and Abel. At the core of this belief is the conviction that God does not create in order to just throw away. All things will be restored. All of creation will be resurrected like Christ's body. What would that look like? Kind of like Christ's body. Different but recognizable, right? In some sort of glorious way. So that's the big picture. On a personal level, as we try to really personalize this, 
Declaring, I believe in the resurrection of the body is like an ancient way of saying, all of me will be restored. All of me is the target of Christ's salvific effort of redeeming and restoring. All of me, not part of me, all of me. The belief that salvation is complete, that all of a person is what God wants to save and, and, and restore. Early Christian writer named Justin Martyr, he writes this, God calls man to salvation, not part of man. The body is not the man. The soul is not the man. The man is body and soul together. Therefore, both will rise. Friends, partial salvation is sad. Partial salvation is incomplete, and it's totally dissatisfying. Part of, the, part of why the whole idea of heaven feels so boring to many of us is because the idea of floating around as a spirit disembodied in the clouds is not fulfilling. It was not meant to be fulfilling because you were meant to experience so much more than that. You're meant to experience all of creation with all of your senses, with all of your soul, and with all of your body. So Christians don't just believe in soul salvation. We believe in whole salvation. But the reason that I put the asterisks there next to me is because whole salvation is not forced. Right? God's not going to coerce you into whole restoration because it's all about his love for us. So I can refuse it and I can deny it and I can reject it and decide that my way is better than his way. The invitation, of course, is to embrace it. The challenge, actually, is to embrace it. Embrace what specifically? Embrace the resurrection of all of me, of everything that I am, of everything that I have. We say, give God everything. Why do we say that? Well, because God deserves it, A, and also so that then God can restore everything. People are unsatisfied in their Christian experience because they're not fully experiencing what Christ wants to do in and with and through them because they're offering little bits and parts, little offerings, chipping, tipping, but we're not saying, I'm just all in. Not until we say I'm all in can God restore all that is there, right? So my sin gets forgiven, which is amazing. We talked about that last week. My brokenness gets healed, right? Even my own death gets overcome. Even my own body, dying, running out of gas, right? It's not a problem because it gets restored in the end. And, and, and it's not just the end, as Martha thought, but even right here, right now, we begin to experience the fullness of the very final phrase of the Apostles' Creed, which is not only I believe in the resurrection of the body, but I also believe in the life everlasting. Right. I can, and I can begin to experience that kind of everlasting life right now. It's so amazing to me. So 20 weeks ago, we began this series on the Creed with the opening line, I believe in God the Father Almighty. It's a soaring statement. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. And then today we kind of wrap it up and it really kind of ends right in this sort of grand statement where it began, and I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. 
right? This full restoration, this full redemption, this full salvation. And then because the creed was not meant for like personal study exclusively in some sort of ivory tower or college classroom, because the creed was written for public worship, it was meant to be proclaimed one to another, it ends with amen, right? So you say it and I say it together and you say it to me and I say it back to you and then we say amen. In other words, that's right. That's what we believe. That's the truth. May it be. And we believe this together. We agree on this together. We say this is what we believe. Amen? All right. So today, last comment here. Our culture is going to be focusing on dads. We're going to celebrate dads today. And amazing dads, I mean amazing dads, and pretty good dads, and well, I'm doing it better than my dad did it, dads. And guys who, frankly, are just dropping the ball completely on being a dad. Basically doing the drive-by nod at being a dad. Are going to receive mugs and t-shirts that say, and cards that say, world's best dad. Right? <laughs> And part of that is just people trying to be nice. I just hate to break it to you, but that's just part of what it is. And part of that is something deeper. Part of that is people longing for the fulfillment of this relationship that they were built to have. Longing for improvement, for, can we use Christian words here? For salvation, for redemption. This has been totally jacked up in my life, but I'm longing for restoration of it, that things that have been broken could be fixed. And so maybe even this day, almost in faith, I can like give you a card and say, would you please become the person that I want you to be, that I long for you to be? And you know what? Sadly, most of that is empty hope. But here's why this specific doctrine makes a difference for Christians, because here's where we actually believe that real change, real transformation is actually possible, that things can be restored, even dead bodies can be brought back to life. This is not some empty hope for some better future. Because of the resurrection, we have a solid and specific reason to hope, right? Not just for dads, but for everybody, that we could all become what we were created to be. And not just for everybody, but for everything. Broken situations in our life. Things that are absolutely, apparently beyond repair. Things that have died. What's the worst that can happen? You die. But because of the resurrection, that's not the end of the story. Because we believe in the resurrection of the body. Everything. And the life everlasting, amen. Right? That's a real reason to hope today right? That's the real undergirding sort of foundation that supports this, this uh, should be this, this ultimately this hopeful perspective that we as Christ followers just carry wherever we go, work, the baseball field, into our homes, even if they're messed up right now, everywhere we go. Amen? Amen. That fires me up. Can I have dads please stand up for a minute? If you're a dad, please stand up. Uh, I want to do two things quickly. Um, I want to honor you, first of all. I want to honor you, um, even specifically today, for demonstrating to those who look to you 
a value in living for Jesus that actually translates into action, and, and you're, you're in worship. That communicates something to your family that maybe words won't ever fully and adequately communicate. That communicates something even to those around you who maybe are deriding you for this commitment. It, it communicates an authenticity because it demonstrates uh, action related to, to your words and your conviction. So I, as, as a brother and as your pastor, I honor you, men and fathers, for, uh, doing, for carrying your responsibility of uh, introducing your family to the church and to Christ. And secondly, I want to pray for you. All right. So if you're around a father, would you please just kind of get close enough that you can put your hand on their arm or their shoulder. You can stand up with them if you want. But let's intercede for our fathers and uh, ask for God's grace to fill them. Our fathers, our grandfathers, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the rich doctrine of the church. I have loved this last 20 weeks of just soaking in it. I pray it's made a difference in our lives and in mine. And today and this morning, we want to pray for the men in our church who have been given the responsibility at this season uh, to lead others. Uh, we pray for grace. We pray that they would be like Christ, full of grace and truth together at the same time. I pray that you would support them in their, um, in their battles for provision that you would supply for them financially so they could take care of those who look to them. I pray that you'd fill them with hope in the face of disappointment and things that haven't worked out as they had wanted. I pray, God, that they would lead with love in their relationships, specifically those who are married, that their, the marriages would be filled with grace and love. I pray that kids would be able to look to their dads and their grandfathers and say, that's how I do it because that's real, and that's hopeful, and that's God-honoring, and that's integrous. And I pray for all of us who can just already just have a list of things. I've messed this up. I didn't do this as well as I should have. I fail continually here, that we would embrace the hope of restoration and know that nothing is done. It's all still uh, in process, and we can submit stuff to you and trust that you will redeem it make it good and right and beautiful again. And finally, Lord, uh, just I'm so aware of, of sadness and brokenness in our community, and I pray for those who are longing for family, that you would fulfill that longing. I pray for those who have uh, examples of fathers that have just been deeply disappointing, that you would heal their hearts and that you would be their father, someone they can look to for good, healthy, wholesome, and, and, and true love. And we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good. Let's take a minute. We will um, uh, just want to take a minute for saying good morning and extending a welcome and peace to one another, and then we'll come back together, um, dedicate a baby, and worship together, celebrate communion. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Take a moment, say good morning, extend the peace of Christ to one another.